I love this. I love this title. Sorry, but not sorry. Now, before I, I get myself into real trouble here, how many of you are Brits? Okay. This is about forgiveness, so I'm going to ask for forgiveness before I say anything else for the Brits, because I've uh, spent some time in the UK, and the Brits love this word, sorry. They use it all the time. And you see it all over the place in the UK. Like the buses have on the, on the, um, on the top, sorry, out of service, which is okay. I mean, we're starting to use that on our buses too. But um, you come along across some roadworks, sorry, we're digging up the road. And here's the bit that I love. You bump into someone on the street accidentally, and it's your fault. You know it's your fault. And they say, sorry. I like it. This is the one I like the best. Um, yeah, let me get to it. I've called this message your get-out-of-jail-free card. You'll find out why in a minute. Um, this is the one I like the best. All day breakfast, bad food, lousy service, we're open, sorry. <laughs> Actually, I read somewhere in a BBC article that the British say sorry on average eight times a day. They've got the best manners in the world. The trouble is you can say sorry and uh, not mean it. It just becomes a thing that you say. Did you ever have that experience as a kid where um, you did something maybe to another kid when you were little? I mean, not when you were sort of older kid, but you know, when you were a little kid and your mum could still manage you. Um, did you ever have that situation where you did something to another kid and your mother grabs you by the arm, or in my era it was they grab you by the ear, that you're not allowed to do that anymore. So your mother grabbed you by the arm. She takes you to confront this other kid that you've been nasty to, and she says, say sorry. And if you were some normal kid, you'd say, sorry. And whether you really meant it or not was another thing. Probably you didn't because your mum was making you say sorry, right? So asking for forgiveness and offering forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that we mean it. It can all just be words. Real forgiveness, says Jesus, has to come from the heart. Big difference between just saying the words and really meaning it. And as Christians, we know we're supposed to forgive. But it's too easy just to go through the motions. As Christians, I ought to know. I've been one for long enough. I know the way it works. Well, I'm expected to do this, so I better say sorry, or I better apologize, or I better ask for forgiveness, blah, blah, blah. You know. So how do we develop a forgiving heart towards those that have wronged us? I want to give you three reasons why we should forgive. The first of them is, oh, they're all, the one that I want to refer to first is found in Matthew 18. And I'm going to refer to that passage in a minute. 
Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells a story. It's in response to Peter's question about, oh, how many times do I have to forgive? And, you know, he starts counting, and Jesus basically says to him, stop counting. But he, Jesus then gives a little bit of teaching, and Jesus is a master at teaching with stories. And there's a story that Jesus told, and I want to, I want to briefly retell it here. Um, you can go home and read the original if you want in Matthew 18. But the story goes like this. There was a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. And so one of his servants owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, I'm deliberately using the original Greek word of talents, not millions of dollars or whatever, because I want to explain that. This talents that Jesus used was a huge amount of money. A laborer in his lifetime could earn about three talents over his working life. So Jesus is talking about this guy who owes the king something like 500 years worth of earnings. That's what he owes. Jesus is saying, get your head around this. This guy is really in deep weeds. He's in huge trouble. Now, we don't know why. Jesus doesn't explain in the story why this man owes the king so much money. Maybe he had a gambling problem. Maybe his wife loved shoe shops. Maybe he was into expensive camels with air conditioning and the whole works. We don't know. The story doesn't tell us. But whatever the reason, this guy is really in big-time trouble because he's been spending the king's money and to use a phrase, all of his chickens had come home to roost because the king wants it back. Now these days, when businesses and banks can't recover bad debts, eventually, I mean, they put you through Baycorp and all the stuff, you know, they send the debt collectors after you, but eventually they write off a debt when they can't recover it. In those days, they didn't write off bad debts, they wrote off bad debtors. And what they did was that they would take anybody who owed money that couldn't or didn't or wouldn't repay, and they would repossess them and their family and their wife and their kids and their family, and they would sell the lot as slaves. So people got sold into slavery because they couldn't repay debt. And the proceeds of a slave, of selling a person off into slavery wasn't very much. In this case, it wouldn't have done much towards the debt, but it was something. So this king pronounces the sentence, and this guy knows he's about to lose everything forever. He falls on his knees, begs for mercy, no excuses, no explanations, just an empty promise that he's going to pay it back. Yeah, right. <coughs> Excuse me. And he knew, and the king knew, that there was no way he was going to pay it back. Then where was he going to get that sort of money? So the sight of this man groveling and begging for forgiveness from the king, <coughs> excuse me again, touches the heart of the king. And the king's got a heart of compassion, so he, he forgives him the whole debt. Thanks, I think I know where you're going, and yes, I need a glass of water. The king cancels the whole debt, which in that context, in that society, was an amazing thing. 
Incredible. Didn't happen. Almost unheard of in the time of Jesus. Almost unheard of in our time too. If you know of any banks that cancel debt like that, tell me about them. I'd love to be a customer. Doesn't happen in our society either. But this story doesn't finish there because this same servant goes on his way Hardly believing his luck. He's skipping down the road. He's got a big smile on his face. He's pinching himself because he can't believe that it's true. And he comes across another servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, again, I'm using the original Greek word. Denarii. hundred denarii was a trifling amount. You could put a hundred denarii in your pocket. It was parking meter money. Let me illustrate the difference in value between these two debts. If the debts were in five cent coins, a hundred denarii would fit in your pocket. 10,000 talents would have taken 8,600 men, each carrying a 60 kilogram sack of five cent pieces, to carry it to the king. Huge difference in debt. Now, this servant who been forgiven so much by the king, he grabs his fellow servant by the throat and he says, cough up what you owe me. Very appropriate time to be talking about coughing up. Thank you. Yep, that makes a difference. Thank you. This time, the servant who's been forgiven this huge debt, been forgiven so much, asked to forgive a very small debt and he shows no forgiveness, no mercy, Instead, he has this guy jailed until he can pay the debt back. And the king gets to hear about it. He hears about this unforgiving servant who's refused to forgive. He calls him back in and he says, I forgave you when you begged me. Shouldn't you have shown mercy to your fellow servant? You were forgiven a massive debt and you couldn't even forgive a debt of a few tiddly denarii. And with all the stories that Jesus told, there was a point to this one. You and I have been given, forgiven a huge debt by a generous God. A massive debt. Our debt to God is so massive that we don't have a hope of repaying it. But we've been forgiven and we're being asked to forgive others. The comparison is huge and tiny. Anything that we are asked to forgive is tiny in comparison to what God has forgiven us. God has been merciful to us in Jesus. God has forgiven us and cancelled our debt. He spared us from eternal punishment and he expects that from now on, we should act like him towards others. He expects that we should be a forgiving people. So if you are in God's kingdom, and you've been forgiven your sin through the death of Jesus on the cross, then God has got expectations of you, as he has expectations of me. He expects that we will be as forgiving of others as he has been forgiving of us. 
So that's one major thing, the reason why we need to forgive. Second one is this. We need to forgive for the sake of our own spiritual and mental health. Now, up to this point, most of us, I think, get the point of Jesus' story about what Jesus is talking about, but I, I didn't finish the story. If you know the story well, you'll notice that I missed a bit. There's a sting in the tail of this story that Jesus told, and Jesus makes it clear that he expects that people like you and me, who have been forgiven a whole heap, will be generous in forgiving others. And here comes the sting in the tail of Jesus' story. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he'd paid his entire debt. And these are the words of Jesus. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and your sisters from your heart. Remember I talked before about forgiving from the heart? rather than just saying the words. You see, in Jesus' day, the justice system, system wasn't as refined as ours. There were official torturers that were appointed by the courts, and their job was to make people tell the truth about where their money was hidden. So people who had treasure or who had money, they would bury it to keep it safe and no one would know where it was buried except that person, and sometimes that person would deny that they had any money at all. So the torturers would take a hold of that person, and they would jog their memory and force them to dig up what was buried so that they could pay what they owed. And these torturers or tormentors would keep at it day in, day out, until the person confessed what they had hidden. They wouldn't give up. And Jesus is saying that if we refuse to forgive from our hearts, not just lip service words, but from our hearts, we're going to be in a prison where we are tortured. You know what God does? He turns us over to the torturers, and we keep on getting tortured until we dig up this debt of forgiveness. Now, some of you here know what I'm talking about because you've been forgiven much, but you haven't forgiven other people. And you've been tortured by guilt, by tension, depression, and anxiety. Some of us have resentment that is buried that goes back years and years and the king has turned us over to the torturers. And we've wondered why we've never had any peace in our life. And our life has been filled with conflict and bitterness and fear and confusion and despair. Because for years, God has been allowing the torturers to work on us until we dig up this debt of forgiveness that we owe other people. Now, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is what Jesus said. Jesus tells us, that we will never be released from the jail of torment until we forgive from the heart. And I've seen, and I guess you have too, you've seen people who have suffered 
emotional and psychological and even physical sickness because they refuse to forgive. And they've become emotional and spiritual cripples. Now, let, hear me clearly on this. I'm not saying that every sickness or every depression or malady is, is related to unforgiveness, but there's a lot more of it is than we give credit for. And when we refuse to forgive, God the Father allows the tormentors of guilt and tension and anxiety and depression and bitterness and inner conflict and fear to keep working on us until we forgive. And these torturers, they keep us awake at night. They hang over us like a depressing cloud. During the day, they turn our conversation into bitterness and criticism. And they become the preoccupation of our minds. They distort our view of people and they make us negative and pessimistic. And they never let go. They have a hold on our lives and they keep that hold until we forgive. But forgiveness is our get-out-of-jail-free card. You ever played Monopoly? You know what the the get-out-of-jail-free card is, eh? God has given all of us one of those. We all have a get-out-of-jail-free card, and it's up to us to use it. And the get-out-of-jail-free card is forgiveness. We get out of our own jail when we forgive. Here's the third thing. Nope, that's not the third thing. That's the third thing. Forgive because you're a servant of Jesus Christ. If you understand what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ, then you'll have a servant mindset. If you have a servant mindset, then you understand that you don't have a right to hold grudges. You don't have a right to be offended. Pretty soon, if you have a servant mindset, you start thinking like a servant, and pretty soon you'll start acting like a servant. Let me explain that a bit more. If you're a trained nurse or a doctor, and you're driving up State Highway 1, and you come across this massive road accident and there are bodies everywhere and blood everywhere and stuff, you don't sit in your car and think, oh, I wonder if I'll get involved in this. I wonder if I'll do anything. All of your training kicks in and says, I'm a nurse. I'm a doctor. My job, my mindset, it's all been geared. I've been trained to help people in just this situation. This is not, will I do this? But this is who I am. Firefighters have the same mindset. Got any firefighters here? No? Yep. Firefighters have this sort of mindset. When they walk into a building, they're not looking at the musical instruments. They're looking for sprinklers and exit signs. and They're thinking fire. Looking for fire alarms and escape routes. And if there is a fire, they don't stand there saying, oh gosh, we should... I wonder what we should do. They're grabbing the first extinguisher they can find. They're into it because they've got a mindset of a firefighter. Meghan Markle's just married into the royal family. Okay? She's now a royal, whether she likes it or not. She has to think like a royal. 
She has to act like a royal. She has to watch out for the paparazzi all the time. She can no longer live the life she used to live because she's now married Harry. She's one of them. And she has to live and think and have the mindset of a royal. You and I are children of the king. We have to act and think like children of the king. We are servants of Jesus Christ. We need to think and act like Jesus. And a servant mindset says, I don't have the luxury of being offended or holding grudges or refusing to forgive. I used to have that luxury before I met Jesus, but now that I've met Jesus, now that he's done so much for me, I'm his servant and I don't have that luxury anymore. I'm a follower of Jesus, and therefore, as Jesus taught, I expect to be treated the way he was. I expect to be ridiculed and mocked. I expect to be abused and scorned. I expect to be ill-treated. I expect that I will need to forgive a whole lot more than everybody else because I walk in the footsteps of Jesus. I'm a child of the king. And because I'm a child of the king means I'm going to be treated the way they treated Jesus. I now have the mind of Christ, so I need to do what Jesus did. You got that? Takes a long time to get that into your head. But once you've got it in your head, your life begins to change. Some years ago in a church where I was the pastor, I led a communion. And I talked about the teaching of Jesus where he said, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. And I was talking about this before we had communion together. And I said to people, you know, before we have communion today, we're going to put this into practice. So I said, we're not going to serve the bread and the juice until we've actually made peace with one another and we've reconciled with one another. And everybody sat in church just like you're sitting and thinking, ah, what are we supposed to do now? And I said to them, if you need to forgive someone or to ask for forgiveness, you need to do that before we take the bread and the juice. One of the most amazing things happened that I still is vivid in my mind. In that congregation were two family members who had got sideways with each other to the point where they hadn't spoken to each other for months. And they deliberately come and sit in different parts of the church so that they didn't have to talk to each other. They were family, not just Christian family, they were blood relatives. But that Sunday morning, one of them got out of their seat, got out of her seat. She went over to the other one. She asked for forgiveness. And I watched as these two women took communion together, hugging each other with tears running down their face. It was the most beautiful thing. You know what happens when you forgive? You set a prisoner free. 
and the prisoner you set free is you. The problem doesn't get fixed by ignoring it. It doesn't get fixed by walking away. It doesn't get fixed by posting on Twitter or Facebook and telling all your friends how hurt you are. Time doesn't heal it. Hurts get fixed when we act and think like a servant and we screw up our courage and we sit down with the person that has hurt us and we work at being reconciled. Does it work every time? No. Do you have to do it more than once? Probably. Now, for some of you, you're thinking of relationships that are broken or issues that you need to deal with or areas of forgiveness that you need to face. And you might be thinking, wow, that's just a, oh, that's just a big step that is way too hard for me. Okay, here's where you start. Start by praying for the person. It's really hard, you know, to be mad at a person that you're praying for, especially if you're asking God to bless them. You know, learning to forgive is like learning to walk. Have you seen toddlers when they're learning to walk, when they take their first steps? Parents have got their phones out, you know, they're wanting to photograph it all, they're wanting to video it all, and it's just such a cool moment, and the grandparents get rung up and say, come over and look at this. <coughs> Excuse me. And you know what happens, don't you? Mum or dad is down on their knees, holding their arms out, come on, come on, come on. And this little kid's holding onto the coffee table, and then they let go, and they take some wobbly, wobbly steps, and they... And then, bang, down on the floor they go. And then they lie there and they say to themselves, right, that's it, I tried walking, never going to do that again. Waste of time, doesn't work. Right? No way. Little kids get up and they try again. And mum or dad is down there on the floor saying, come on, come on, come on, you can do this. And this time, it's worse. They fall again, but this time they whack their head on the coffee table. And there's lots of tears and a bit of blood and stuff. And they say, no, no, I'm never going to try that again. I tried it twice. I'll just stay in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. No way. Little kids, they get up and they say, come on, come on. And with a lot of encouragement from the people who love them, they do it again and again and again. And eventually they're walking and they're not even thinking about walking. They're just walking. Even if you're not very good at forgiving, you can learn by taking the first steps. And God, your loving Father, will be there holding his arms out. Come on, come on, you can do this, you can do this. Whack, oh boy. But he's saying, come on, get up, try again. And eventually, forgiveness becomes so much a part of you that you do it without even really having to think about it. That's how you learn to forgive. The same way you learn to walk. I want to finish with a true story. 
One of the most enduring memories left over from the Vietnam War was the picture of a little girl just nine years of age, horribly burnt over 80% of her body, running naked while her village was being bombed with napalm. Here's the picture. A lot of you will have seen it or remember it. The little girl's name is Kim Fook. She's now a grown woman. And Kim Fook has met Jesus and her life has been transformed. She still lives daily with the pain of the, and the scars and the burned nerve endings. Here they are. 80% of her body burned by napalm. But she's healed. The hatred in her heart has healed. She's forgiven the pilot who dropped the bombs. She's met him and forgiven him. And you know, when, when she does interviews now and they get a photographer in, they find it hard to get a picture of her looking sad. Isn't that cool? That's who she is today. And they find that during interviews she laughs all the time. And there's a joy in her heart because she's forgiven. And she speaks at all sorts of places and all sorts of conferences about the way that Jesus has helped her forgive. What changed her? Jesus did. Kim Fook is a radiant Christian who travels the world telling people about the importance of forgiveness that comes through Jesus. And although she's physically scarred on the outside, there are no scars on the inside. She gave God permission to do the healing on the inside of her life, and he did it for her, and he can do it for you. Let's pray. Lord, you know what you need to do within us. And many of us here need to just take that first baby step. Give us the courage to take that first step of forgiveness and to keep on taking steps until we are walking in forgiveness in the way that Jesus did. We ask it in his name. Amen.